Welcome to Talking New Energy, a podcast from Delta EE, the new energy experts. We'll be talking about how the energy transition is developing across Europe, with guests who are working at the leading edge of this transition. Hello, and welcome to this episode, the first of Series 6. Today, we're travelling across the Atlantic to the US, and specifically to Vermont, where we're talking with Graham Turk from energy retailer Green Mountain Power. We'll be exploring the twin and related themes of residential scale energy storage and resilience. So residential scale energy storage is still really only a small dot on the wider electricity system landscape. And for most of us, we take the resilience of our electricity system for granted, particularly here in Europe. But energy storage is going to become a much bigger part of the energy system. And I think resilience will come more and more into focus. So I'm delighted to welcome Graham to the podcast and alongside him, my colleague and Delta EE expert, Jeremy Harrison. Graham, let's start with you. So hello, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, John. Now, most of our listeners, I'm assuming, won't know Green Mountain Power at all and probably won't know that much about the electricity market in the northeast of the US. Can you give us a bit of an introduction or elevator pitch for Green Mountain Power? Sure, sure. So uh, yes, Green Mountain Power, we're an electric utility um, serving about 260,000 customers just in the state of Vermont. Um, We're connected with five other New England states, um, Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Connecticut, um, in, uh, in a connected system run by a grid operator called ISO New England. And I'd say that our our goal is really to accelerate the transition to a more distributed and renewable electricity grid um, and driving at decarbonization and and transportation and heating. And are are you in the context of your part of the world, a a big utility, a small utility, a medium utility? I would say small to medium. Yeah, there's uh, there's some a little little bit larger utilities in Massachusetts um, and we're right on the Canadian border. And so just south of Quebec, which uh, a huge utility in Hydro-Quebec that serves Montreal. Yeah. Well, I've had the, the uh, been lucky enough to go to Vermont once and remember trees, trees, trees and beautiful uh, rural scenery. Uh, not particularly urban, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it is the, the Green Mountain State and we've uh, lucky to have a lot of good skiing and, and also a lot of a lot of pretty hikes. Yeah. Well, apart from being in a, a lovely part of the world, is there anything that makes you different from other energy companies? You've talked about your size, but any other distinguishing features? Sure. I think uh, culturally, we, we definitely try to be a little different. If you walk into our office, you won't see uh, any cubicles. We have a totally open floor plan. Our CEO stands at a standing desk about 15 feet away from where our line workers come in every day. Um, and so we really try to strive to be very open and transparent. And we were the first utility to be certified as a B Corp, um, which is, uh, I'm not sure how many listeners will know about it, but a, a rigorous certification standard uh, for transparency, corporate governance, and sustainability that a lot of uh, U.S. companies have, have uh, been able to achieve. Okay. Uh, thanks for the, the context and background. Uh, before we move on to Jeremy, can you describe in a nutshell the, the resilience proposition that I'm really interested to, to read about, the, the one that you're trialing with your customers at the moment? Yes, absolutely. So uh, I can I can do the the radio announcer pitch, um, but <laughs> no, I'll. Uh, yes, the the proposal really was it was launched in 2017, and um, the the customer offer was a fifteen dollar per month. Um, you could think of as resilience as a service. 
So for no money down, customer could install um, one or two Tesla Powerwalls and have the benefit of, of seamless, clean backup power instead of needing a, a generator for when power came out. Um, it's structured so that the customer um, pays that lease $15 a month for 10 years. We own the system and maintain it and then dispatch it for, for peaks reduction um, when it's not being used for, for backup power. And is it packaged with uh, photovoltaics typically or do most of the customers who've got it typically have uh, PV panels? Sure, it's not necessarily with PV. About 50% of customers who took advantage, um, we've got about 2,500 now rolled out, um, do have PV, which extends the, the duration of, of backup because it can just keep charging the battery, but it wasn't essential. And, um, and some customers just decided to do standalone storage. Okay, and last question for now. Do many of your customers have backup generators? I know in parts of the US where reliability is uh, a challenge sometimes, that's it's not uncommon. Is that how widespread is that in Vermont? It definitely is pretty widespread. I'd say in the in especially the more rural parts of the state um, where uh, outages are common, a lot of folks will have some form of backup, um, typically a, a propane or oil generator. And so this is this is a clean alternative to that. Um, and a lot of customers who who opted for this were either replacing a generator or thinking about getting a generator, and instead were able to do um, to do battery. Okay, uh, thanks, Graham. We'll come back to you shortly. Uh, so my second guest is my colleague Jeremy Harrison. Hello, Jeremy. Hello. Um, so Jeremy, I'd like to ask you a bit more about resilience, where we just ended with uh, Graham. Now, I remember growing up in the, the 70s, giving away my age a bit, in, in London, and power cuts being quite a regular occurrence. Uh, I don't know, with, with time, maybe they weren't that regular, but I remember them as regular. Um, now, I hardly remember the last time I there was a power cut where I live uh, in Glasgow. And I think many of our listeners will take resilience and reliability of the electricity system for granted. But resilience, as I said, is creeping back up the agenda. Why do you think that is, Jeremy? Or what is it that's making starting to make people a bit more concerned about resilience? Well, without going into my age in too much detail, um... I remember in the 60s when we had some very severe power cuts for very long periods when the grid was really not fit for purpose. Um, we didn't have enough generating capacity, we didn't have enough um, distribution capacity, um, and partly the resilience we see in Europe today is a consequence of that, that following um, you know, a couple of really bad winters, there was a decision with the nationalised industries to invest heavily, some would say gold plate, the, the, the industry, and so we ended up with a very robust system with very high levels of resilience. Um, I think the 70s was more to do with uh, industrial action than uh, the resilience of the system itself. But we've grown up quite complacently thinking that you know, our system is always going to be like that. And I think that one of the things that has really brought home to me, the, um, I suppose the, the fact that we, we can't anticipate things so well is the recent COVID-19 uh, event, which none of us saw coming well a few few people bill gates i think saw coming um but most people didn't see coming and i i wonder whether the same thing is going to face us with resilience in europe we have grown quite used to it and the system is now changing we're getting much bigger demands for uh, for heat pumps electrification of heat electrification of transport we're getting a much bigger penetration of intermittent renewables it's a much more dynamic system and i think we need to just consider what the, the challenges might be about resilience uh, in, in the future. 
So it might be a, a harder system to manage, I think a possible system to manage for sure, but maybe a bit less gold plating than there, there was in the past. The other issue, which I don't know how much we'll see in Europe is natural disasters. So um, some people may have followed the Californian wildfires and the impact on uh, electricity supply there. So I think uh, customers going days, weeks without electricity. Um, so do you think that is that uh, provoking much more thought in the industry, Jeremy? I think it's starting to, to make people more aware of it. Um, you know, the California case is, you know, is quite peculiar to them and, uh, well, similar to the Australian ones as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but the issue about, um, as you say, the what they call the, the PSPS, the, uh, the Preventative Shutdown System for Public Safety, um, where they actually isolate the network just in case the lines get blown over and start a fire. Um, and so the resilience there tends to be people building, um, instead of just having backup generators, having maybe CHP plants or PV with um, backup generators to give that level of resilience. Um, but that is very much about, as you say, sort of multi-day interruptions. Mm -hmm. I think that one recent example in Western Europe, in the UK, in fact, was um, a case back in, in August last year where the grid in part of, of England near London went down due to tripping out of um, two power stations simultaneously, a, a gas plant, thermal plant, and a, an offshore wind plant. And, and I think that just drew people's attention to the fact that even though we have a generally very resilient system, there may be cases here as well, uh, particularly, as I say, with the, the increased uh, penetration of intermittent generation, uh, we need to think about different ways of managing the system. Um, it's, yeah, so, so it's about providing resilience to uh, ourselves. So having, uh, I think what, what Graham will be talking about, the uh, having your own home being um, able to support itself, but also how we provide resilience to the whole system so that we don't get renewable generators tripping out and taking the whole system mm. down with them. And I think it's still very much emerging demonstration pilot activity in Europe, but there are projects uh, using batteries to provide resilience as a service, some battery vendors in Germany enabling homes to operate uh, right through power outages with their batteries in the same way you're doing, Graham. So yeah, not certainly not an issue in Europe, but I think starting to, to poke its head uh, above the water. Graham, let's come back to you and delve a bit more into your uh, really interesting resilience proposition. So can you tell us a bit why you developed it? Was it opportunistic or part of a clear strategy? Yeah, so I think at the time, you know, in our innovative work, we're always looking for new, exciting companies who have, have new innovative technologies. And this was a big one where um, seeing that there was an option to do residential backup storage with batteries as opposed to generators, um, listening to our customers and recognizing, as I mentioned before, that the resiliency is a, a major concern for a lot of Vermonters. Um, it's a very rural state. A lot of our territory um, is wooded. And so when there are big storms, windstorms or heavy, wet snowstorms, it can take down big trees that are causing multi-day events, depending on how widespread they are. And so I think it was a combination of matching the new available technology um, that came out with a, a real need that we knew from, from living here and from speaking to our customers was there um, and having a clean alternative to backup generation. And how much of it would you say is a technology 
challenge or a technology demonstration, how much of it is around the proposition and the business model, how much of it is a, uh, the interface between the batteries and the, the wider network? You know, wh where's the, the challenge or what were you really looking to test here? Sure, sure. So I think, you know, people have, have done off-grid setups for a long time where they're pairing solar PV with, with lead-acid batteries and just powering a, a cabin or something in the woods that's not connected to the grid. I think what was key here was showing that um, a battery and potentially PV system can be integrated with the grid that provides benefits both to the participating customer in the form of backup power and also to all of our customers um, and how the batteries interact with our total system load and help reduce peak-related costs. Yeah, okay. So that two-sided business model. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. For for the customer then, uh, you're using one or two batteries. Is it typically one or typically two for a home? And how much of that load does that cover for what sort of period of time typically? Sure. So, so most customers did opt for the, the whole home two battery solution um, with one battery, which was just $15 a month. It's typical that you would only be able to back up some critical loads. Um, and many customers did opt for that. But if you'd like to do the whole house, the entire uh, electrical panel, it, it was fairly typical to have to do two. Um, I'd say that we've seen with customers that if you just have standalone storage and you're fairly conservative when there's an outage about using very little energy, you can last for, I would say, between 24 and 36 hours. Um, if you have solar PV and it's sunny and it keeps getting recharged, we've had events where customers have ride, um, ridden through four or five day outages. Um, there was an event last October where there was over 10,000 hours of cumulative backup provided by this program alone. And so we've seen some pretty incredible stretches of, uh, of staying disconnected, but continuing to power your home um, just with battery and PV alone. And do you need to install any clever load management software to meet the peaks in the home? Because, or does the, the power capacity of those two batteries always bigger than the peaks? How do you manage if they've got an instantaneous 15 kilowatt demand in the home, for example? Yeah, so it definitely is sized uh, for the home's load. If, if, for instance, the critical load panels wouldn't necessarily be used to back up um, very large drawing uh, home loads, but for, for whole home backup, it can provide a, a two batteries a peak of 10 kilowatts. Um, and so it's, it's fairly unlikely that you'd have any uh, standard home appliances that are pulling more than that. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I can understand why people go for two because it's complete peace of mind. Um, and what's that, an extra $15 a month or how does the pricing work? Exactly, okay. yep, just an extra 15. Yeah, okay. Um, and the value to the to the grid, you mentioned peak shaving. Can you tell us a bit more about how that works? Um, what sort of peaks you're shaving? Absolutely, yeah. So a large portion of our power supply costs in a year are driven by 13 single hours. So it's the highest hour of peak demand in each month and then the highest hour of demand throughout the whole year for the entire New England region. Um, those set up about 25% of our total power supply expenses. And so every kilowatt that we can shave off of that peak demand translates to cost savings that are passed down to all of our customers. And so we have that in the entire aggregation of batteries, um, over 10 megawatts of aggregated peak dispatch capability that are constantly watching the, the real-time load for Vermont and for the region and dispatching based on when they can shave the most, um, the most amount of, of, of peak. 
Uh, so those are those are dispatched automatically. We're actually uh, working with with Tesla to do that, and so we don't have to uh, manually schedule events. It's it's done all seamlessly. And can you see yourselves layering on other values? You know, all the way down to frequency services or system stability, for example. Absolutely, yeah. So we, we've. Uh, to this point, have only done peak shaving, um, but there there are opportunities with arbitrage. So taking advantage of uh, wholesale price discrepancy um, with the, the wholesale cost of energy, um, haven't done that yet. And then frequency regulation is another one on the horizon. There's still some some rules being put out about how that would work with an aggregation instead of a a single generator. Um, but definitely an option. And then I think the third would be um, supporting the the deployment of more renewable generation. Um, we have a huge amount of solar capacity installed in Vermont, which many people are surprised about because we're <laughs> a rather cold and cloudy state. Uh, but but a, a lot of solar installed, and there's some areas where there's so much solar that um, that installing more is there's actually a barrier to doing that. And so the ability of storage to soak up some of that daytime solar load, combined with uh, strategic electrification of heat pumps and electric vehicles, may help alleviate that issue. And what's the challenge then of uh, tapping into those other values that you just described is it is it market and regulation market rules based is it technically how do you optimize the battery across multiple value streams um, and how quickly do you think you might do that Sure. So I think it's, it's a combination of both on the, the regional level. Um, there are definitely some, some rules that are still being flushed out um, that, that will give us better guidance on what values there are to, to tap into. Um, and then I think part of it is the optimization question of if, you're, if you have all of these different competing services um, that you'd, you'd like to dispatch the battery for, frequency regulation, peak shaving, um, local congestion alleviation, how do you do that in a way that meets all needs while getting the most value for customers? Yeah, okay. And I guess that's not too big a problem today because if it's just one hour a month for peak shaving, you're not going to be discharging the battery too much that if there was an outage, then the battery would struggle to provide that resilience. Sure. So on that piece, though, we actually we, we are monitoring constantly the forecast for storms and wind and, and heavy wet snow. And if there's a case where um, there is a, a high risk of outage, we'll just turn off dispatch entirely. Um, we know that for the customers who have this, um, it is primarily a resiliency resource. And so it's it's not infrequent at all that we would, uh, based on a forecast, shut off dispatch. In fact, for the current situation with, with everyone at home um, due to COVID-19, we've completely shut off our automated dispatch uh, for the last month now. Right. Okay. And that's always a challenge in value stacking is those what ifs, two things are pulling in different directions. Um, have you come across that, those conflicts? Are they, is this the first time you've had to stop using the batteries for peak shaving or does it happen once or twice a year or how, how regularly do you see these conflicts? Sure. So at least with, with the storms, um, it, it's at least in the winter when we're getting um, our, our riskier storms due to the heavy wet snow or the high winds, um, it's a few times a month that we'll shut off dispatch temporarily um, for at least a day. And, and there have been cases where that will coincide with a risk of a peak, but um, because the, the primary importance is to be delivering backup power, that's, that's a trade-off that we make. Yeah. Okay. And those are trade-offs you have to explore further as and when you start layering on other... Uh, other values absolutely yeah yeah um and what would you say the key things you've learned so far from the trial are 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think the one, one big positive outcome has just been that, that we've exceeded our expectations in the, the power savings um, where the, the batteries are performing really well against that peak shaving service, um, better than we modeled. And so the program has, has paid for itself um, where these are you know, assets that we own and operate but are helping to reduce the cost uh, and rates for all of our customers. And so that's been a big win. You know, if, we, if we're able to hit even the single annual peak um, last summer, we hit it square on with our entire aggregation, and it was about $500,000 of savings for that single hour. Uh, and so I think that was, that was a big, um, you know, really positive outcome. And then, and then another is just we've, we've heard from so many customers um, how nice it's been to have this seamless backup where they don't have to think about going out and purchasing propane or fuel um, for their generator. It's on. It's seamless. It kicks in as soon as the power goes out without really any interruption. And just having that peace of mind is really important for customers. How big do you think the demand is for customers and would, at what point? Are you thinking about going beyond this trial demonstration phase into rolling it out? Yeah, so we've filed a, for a tariff, which would make this um, an ongoing program, along with a, a separate program that's more of a bring-your-own-device style, where we would provide an upfront incentive for batteries that a customer owns, um, but we pay for um, access to manage during peaks. And so those are both uh, currently in the, the tariff review process. Um, we have a wait list of over, you know, multiple thousand customers, I think over a thousand customers, um, who, who are interested in the initial offering but not able to get in the door by the time it closed. Um, and I do think that there, there'll be situations where um, backing up a single home might not make a lot of sense, but backing up uh, a community or a block um, will. And, and so I don't, I don't think that this precludes those types of offerings, um, more so as the technology evolves and we're able to back up different uh, subsets of our distribution grid um, that could change in how, how we take that approach. Well, that's really interesting because, Jeremy, I wanted to ask you about how this might translate from a, a household or building level approach to a community approach. So might, to what degree do you think we'll see batteries installed in communities, be it a village, a new build development, uh, part of a town that would enable a whole community to be to have this sort of resilience. Do you see this happening already, or do you th is is it something you think we'll see more of? Yeah, I mean, there's an awful lot going on in in Europe generally uh, regarding energy communities. Some of which have yeah B2G you know, vehicle to grid um, uh, or other battery storage. Um, but I think that one quite interesting aspect of this resilience is that um, you talked about your resilience to the individual householder. Uh, and also providing some kind of services to the, the wider grid in terms of um, maybe doing frequency control and so on. And those sort of pilot uh, projects are happening in uh, in a number of European countries, um, looking at services both to the, the overall energy system, but also avoiding grid constraints at the distribution level. One really interesting model that um, was trialled some time ago in, in Japan uh, is where they built a, a little town called uh, Fujisawa, uh, which uh, both has batteries providing resilience to the individual household. This was a you know, post-Fukushima um, uh, concept, um, but also, uh, quite importantly, the same batteries providing resilience to the local distribution network. So in the event of a grid failure, not only would you have the battery supporting your own uh, domestic needs, it also supported your neighbor's needs. So you'd actually then have a, um, uh, an automatic microgrid where 
the individual households were supporting each other as, as part of a community. Um, so, I don't know whether so, that's something which, sorry. Jeremy, is that where, so in essence there, you can be resilient yourself, but you can also help the wider community, the wider network to be resilient. Absolutely, and I think yeah. um, that's a sort of very active way of doing it. One of the things which we learned from the, the grid failure uh, in the UK last year was that the, the problem with the um, amount of embedded generation we have today is that the grid codes require us to disconnect in the event of a, a, a fluctuation in, in frequency outside certain limits, uh, small embedded generators have to disconnect. So what happened was there were about 500 megawatts of distributed generators on the system at the time. And once the system went out of limits, it triggered the collapse of that 500 megawatts, which made things even worse. So if those 500 megawatts of generators had been connected to batteries or um, somebody to isolate themselves from the grid, they could have continued not only to support their local loads, but not cause a further collapse in, in the system. Mm. So you know, the resilience works in a number of ways. Graham, what's your thoughts on that? Because at the household level, if you're a house in the middle of the woods uh, and your line goes down, you can't provide those resilient services back to the grid because you've got no connection to the grid because your line's gone down. But do you see opportunities in Vermont amongst your customers where you could go in the direction that Jeremy described? I do. So we, we actually have a few larger microgrids, um, solar and storage at the, the megawatt scale, um, where our engineering team is looking at islanding a portion of a distribution feeder to use that um, that stored energy and, and local generation to power a, a collection of homes. Um, I, I, I don't want to try to talk about the, uh, the engineering challenges there because I am by no means an expert in that. I know that there are some concerns with uh, having non-spinning generation and maintaining the, the safe voltage bands to be able to do that, uh, but it's, it's absolutely on the horizon. And I think um, having different options in different situations um, will help expand the number of customers that have some form of resilience, whether it's community level or at the individual home level. You know, I think that we, we expanding resiliency to more customers is, is absolutely the goal. Having a, a, an energy system that's more community-based and resilient, um, I think that in some situations, community-scale resilience will make more sense. In others, it will be at an individual home level. Um, and I think that the, the pilot that we trialed kind of used what was available at the time. Um, but I don't doubt that, that as the technology improves, we'll be able to, um, to island and to, to kind of separate a portion of the distribution feeder um, from the larger grid to, to keep a larger um, subset of customers up and running during outages. One, one of the challenges here is the, the commercial model. And Graham, it might be slightly different for you in Vermont being a regulated utility without retail market competition than it is for many companies in Europe. But presumably, because you're filing for a tariff, it's something where the, you see the economics do work. It is creating enough value for customers, enough for your what the specific customers and your your wider set of customers. Uh, do you think the economics are a challenge here, or are the economics there, and it's more the regulations, the business model, the um, getting all those values out from the system that we talked about? Sure, sure. So I, I think that with, with the performance we've seen on um, the power supply savings, that, that piece we've proven out. I think that the question mark at the beginning was what are customers willing to pay for resilience? And um, it's, it's not like the, the price we set was, was based on some 
magic survey that we, you know, we knew exactly what this was worth to people. It was very much driven by what we needed to charge customers for the program to be made whole and generate positive benefits for our entire customer set. And I think the fact that it was so well subscribed um, demonstrated that that number, the $15 a month or 30 for whole home backup, uh, was something that customers are, are willing to pay uh, for that peace of mind. Yeah, okay. And if the price of batteries comes down, that number falls over time. Um, and customers are leasing them. You're owning the battery. Have you picked up anything from customers about their desire to own batteries or they don't care whether you own them or they own them? Sure. Yeah, I think it's a mix. We've, we've definitely, and, and with that other bring your own device program, it, it gives the option of customer ownership. Um, for various reasons, customers might want to own their own. Um, changing some of the operating settings to use more local solar energy, for instance. You know, in our program, those batteries are topped off um, at 100% almost all the time, except when they're being used for backup or for peak shaving, so that they're ready to go if there's an outage event. Um, there are other instances, and especially in other territories where feed-in tariffs for solar energy might be different, um, where having ownership and be able, being able to control the operation um, might be desirable. But I think in our case, uh, the, the ease and the simplicity where if something goes wrong with that battery, we will service it. Um, means that it, with a new technology, there's not nearly the amount of risk that a homeowner would have to think about since it's it's sort of all taken care of. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Graham. Um, Jeremy, I just wanted to ask you about um, COVID-19 and whether the current crisis and sort of black swan event that we're in the middle of at the moment will lead to a bigger focus on resilience, whether you think actually we'll start to look the resilience of lots of things now from our healthcare system to our electricity system interesting point i mean people have been talking already about the need to have more localization um to provide resilience as you say in food supply and in in everything really mm. um, i'm not sure that will necessarily feed its way through to the the energy system but it certainly i think raises awareness of, of the issue um, and as i said before i think that it's more just the the idea that things can happen so unexpectedly might make us revisit the way we think about the way our energy um, That may be something to stimulate uh, energy communities. It may be to do with resilience, um, but it certainly isn't going to carry on as it always has done, I don't think. Well, with that thought, let's move to crystal ball time and gaze into the future together. So uh, bringing up the talking new energy crystal ball uh, and I'm going to set the dial to 2035, which I think is the furthest forward I've set it so far, but it's a, a very sophisticated crystal ball so it can cope. Um, Graham, Jeremy, I'd like you to characterize uh, in 2035 on a scale of one to 10, where you think resilience will be in customers' minds in Vermont and here in Europe. So how important resilience will be in customers' minds and whether what proportion of customers will have a solution, both on a, a one to 10 scale. Um, Graham, let's start with you as resilience is higher up people's minds in Vermont today than Europe. Sure. So I think depending on where in Vermont uh, today might be somewhere between a, a four and an eight um, and I think in the last month, it, it might be um, disproportionately high just because as people are home, um, I think the idea of having an uninterrupted electricity supply is, is extremely important. Um, if you're relying on your home electricity and home internet to work, um, I think more important than usual. Um, yeah, I think we've seen, even at the Vermont scale in the last 
10, 15 years, the increasing severity of storms um, are five largest events, storm events in our company's history, which were uh, over 100 years old, going back to uh, just just having some um, small scale hydros powering like three or four villages in Vermont. Um, the five largest events were in the last 10 years. And so we're seeing the impacts of climate change in real time. Um, and I think that as these events happen more often and they're more severe, um, the importance of resiliency will go up. I think that in 2035, I would guess, you know, that number might shift to uh, six to six to nine in terms of how important resiliency is. Okay. Uh, and the proportion of customers in 2035 that will have some kind of resilience solution? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be aggressive here and say 50%. Uh, I think that that is not necessarily will they all have, have home backup, uh, but I think as, as community scale storage um, becomes cheaper and more viable, um, I can foresee instances where a, a, a shelter or a school would become a, an emergency shelter for a community. And so they could all, everyone could, could go there um, in the event of an outage and have the benefit of backup. Um, I'm dreaming of a day where an electric school bus can plug in to a school and provide backup power. Uh, and so I think that the, the form of the solution will be different, um, but 50% will have some form of resiliency um, in 2035. Jeremy, how about uh, yourself here in more resilient Europe? Well, one thing we know about Facebook is they're a terribly fickle lot. And um, I think that as I said, that the coronavirus epidemic thing will stimulate some public attention to supply chain and those kind of areas. I'm not sure how long that will last um, and whether that will be the driver. So I would guess by 2035, probably people will not be really thinking about it that actively at all. But what I do think is that they will, I mean, I don't think the 50% level, <laughs> that's maybe very ambitious, but certainly I think there'll be a significant, maybe 20, 30% of um, households have some form of resilience, but not necessarily um, sold to them as a resilience um, instrument. It could be that people are being offered, as they already are, uh, solar and battery packages for other purposes, whether it's for having their own green electricity, um, for providing them with, um, yeah, just better economics, um, um, but those storage uh, devices, for example, will be more uh, effective in capturing values from value stacking. So capturing things like uh, flexibility services, resilience and so on, um, but also they'll become cheaper. So I think that people will start to get them in their homes, not because they specifically want resilience devices or backup power, but just because they offer a, a range of other um, solutions and services as well. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So less certainly less of a driver than in Vermont, but moving up the agenda, becoming more important in people's minds and part of a solution, probably rather than the solution. Yeah. And John, I might just add there that as we electrify our heating and transportation system, I think the importance of resilience, electric resilience will will increase. Um, those are the two largest sources of emissions in Vermont um, by far, and there's a huge priority both for us and the state um, at electrifying those two services. And so um, as we rely more and more on electricity for, for heating and for transportation, I think um, that, will, that will inflate the, the value of resilience and, and having other forms of, you know, doesn't necessarily need to be backup, but um, a backup heating system of wood-fired heating in the case that there's an outage, I think those, those forms will also become more popular. 
Yeah, I guess if a power cut and outage means that you can't drive somewhere because you can't charge your car, then that becomes even more important. Well, uh, time has got the better of us again. So thank you so much, Graham, for sharing what you've been doing over in Vermont. It's been great having you on the podcast. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Jeremy, for, for sharing your views here from Europe. Thank you. And uh, thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, look forward to welcoming you back to next week's podcast. Thanks and goodbye. If you're as passionate about the energy transition as we are, then please keep in touch. You can follow us and me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or subscribe to the podcasts on your chosen podcast platform. If you like the podcast and like sharing, then please do rate us. And to listen to archived episodes, to read transcripts, and to see the latest Delta EE insights, then please visit www.delta-ee.com. Thank you.